I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelt save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or ticket. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. I'm here with the one and only Professor Stephen Davis of Lone Star College. Uh, professor, how are you doing today? El Unico. That's my uh, my so, my, my uh, a pseudonym with you, Egberto. It's a El good Unico. Day. <laughs> El Unico, exactamente. Look, man, it's a pleasure having you. We've been we've been working together for a long time. I said that I. Anytime I speak to you, my intellect has been improved because there's so much that you know both about history and politics. It's always a pleasure learning from you, my friend. So well, thank, look, you, uh, thank you for uh, being here. Look, you wrote a piece. Uh, you uh-huh. titled it. The, uh, well, I don't know if you titled it. I titled it. I don't remember now, but it's The Capital mm-hmm. Assault, Roots and Solutions. I think that's your title, actually. It is. And, and um, I, I read the paper and I was like, I think... This is important because you touched on all issues. First of all, you, you said in short run, we should support. First of all, you, you, you acknowledge what occurred. Then there are four things that you divided on. We need to support those who are going to uh, prosecute these folks. You also need to uh, educate people. We need to talk about socialization of the people. So what I'd like you to do is, first of all, tell me what you think is the genesis of what occurred on January 6th. I'll be blunt about it. It's white supremacy, Egberto. Mm-hmm. I never used to really feel that race was such a defining issue in our history and our politics, but I've come around to that conclusion over the years. I think the evidence is just overwhelming. I was at a meeting a while back and one of our administrators was talking about the kind of success gap between black students and white students. And there's all kind of data to show that Black men don't do as well at our community college in terms of getting through the courses and making a passing grade. And he was kind of wondering why that is. And I wanted to tell him, why don't you just look up any book that has 1619 in the title and start (laughs) from there? It's systemic racism. It's centuries of that kind of thing. And I think we've seen at crucial junctures in American history, when it seems we're about to make some real breakthrough and make progress, there's pushback. And it's because there are white men who've gotten used to a situation in which I don't like to use cliches like white skin privilege, but it's there. Um, For the longest time in our history, certainly the history of the South is a good example. Simply by fact of being white, even if you were mediocre in terms of your talents and in terms of your efforts, you still had a category of people that were underneath you. And that provided some comfort. I think it explains why 75% of the white families at the time of the Civil War in the South didn't own any slaves. Yet uh, so many of those men, the bulk of them supported that system and were willing to die to preserve uh, and extend slavery in the United States. And when you have a situation, we can certainly look back now to President Obama's election in 2008. That's been deeply dissettling to some people. And I think that you know when you look at the crowd, at the mob that stormed the Capitol, Uh, That's who comprised it. Angry white men. They feel aggrieved. They feel resentful that the world has changed. The the world is shifting under their feet and uh, they feel at a loss. And I think we can be empathetic to a degree, but there's only so far our empathy should extend. So I, I, I think Trump, of course, had fanned these fires. He's not a smart man, but he's a political genius at touching those kinds of buttons and making those kinds of either coded or not so coded racial appeals. So when I, when I said 
And the title of the piece, The Roots of the Insurrection of the Attack on Our Capital, that's what I was getting at there. Now, when you say, um, I, I, want to, I want to back out a little bit from your paper somewhat and, and tell you some of the thoughts that I've had, right? I've always looked at uh, race from the inception of this country a little bit different than others, right? I always looked at race as a tool. And yes, there is, I, be, I truly believe in that there is race supremacy, but I think it's an, an inputted tool into the minds of people so that ultimately we can have a few in control. Any validity you give that as a historian? I think, I think there's truth in that, that people who have power, and if I had wealth and power, I would probably want to hold on to it as well. So it's not surprising to me that uh, an elite would uh, use this as a manipulative tool, even though they might feel themselves above some of the most naked of the racist feelings. But I think all too sadly, there are, is an element of our population that's capable of being manipulated and absorbing that kind of sentiment and mentality. So I think it's both at work at the same time. I wonder about the white men who you know, comprise that crowd, are some of them redeemable? Perhaps so, and I address that later in terms of the kinds of policies that would address some of the insecurities in their lives some of those psychological insecurities, financial insecurities and the like. But some of them, I'm not sure, can be redeemed, Egberto. I think that virus of racism has infected a number of people very deeply. And I grew up in this society in the South, coming of age in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, I, I tell, I'm, it's not a great admission I make, but I feel the need to tell my students, I use that word to describe Black people until I was 15 or 16 years old. That's the way I was brought up. Now, education was the key in my life, and then the changes of the 1960s arise above all that. But I think I know that culture from firsthand experience. It's not an academic experience for me. Um, so, yes, it is a tool for, you know, for those to want to maintain power, but uh, there's some people who've been more than willing to go along for the ride, sadly. No, I, I want to explore that since, uh, you know, I mean, you, you lived it. Uh, since you lived it and you understand it. Uh, in in those surroundings, what actually goes on in those surroundings? In other words, what is it intrinsic to that person that makes them need to feel what they feel? That they can look at somebody, let's say like me, and mm -hmm. simply not like me just because of my hue. What is the chemical stuff, not chemical, but what is the psychology that's occurring that creates that? I think, again, it's just a need to have somebody beneath. Uh, I think people find a comfort in that. There's a song by uh, Randy Newman that dates from the 70s called Rednecks. Mm -hmm. And I've never had the nerve to play it in class because I think the, the lyrics are just too explosive. But I urge you to look at that. And it's about keeping certain people down and how that, especially not, not that the rest of the country is immune to racism or from it, but in the South, and I'm a native Texan, um, and that's the part of the country that has shaped me. It has especially been problematic. So uh, you, you think that, it, that, it, that there's this necessity, and I, actually that plays into the, the plutocracy's hands, right? Because mm -hmm. if, uh, if you know that you're not at the bottom, uh, then it doesn't feel so bad that you are not at the top, right? Absolutely. It's kind of the what's the matter with Kansas thesis um, in terms of people ultimately uh, voting against their own interests voting against their own economic interests. Now, maybe they're not really voting against their interests if they feel they have a stake in this continued social structure. Now, um, you said that one of the solutions to this problem is education. 
but uh, let me let me back up a, a little bit because you also said that you do believe that there may be some people that really they are so far wired that way that even education wouldn't work with them. That's right. I think, but I think we have to try all the same, and I think we have to 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 uh, we have to understand this is the long term solution. So, as a teacher in the classroom, well, not exactly in the classroom right now due to the pandemic, <laughs> COVID. but. There are certain things I feel that I can contribute, and I, I know that it's not it's not me alone. There are an army of teachers, hopefully across the country, who want to, to make that uh, effort as well. So there's a cumulative effect over time. I see behind you the books. Books are so important. If we can just hook people on reading, if we can increase the attention spans, if we can uh, expose them through literature and history to the beautiful things in life, if we can if we can elevate their critical faculties they begin to question some of this kind of ugly stuff. And I think it also inoculates against the appeal of a demagogue like Trump, who frankly, any person with the degree of knowledge should see is simply not fit for national office at, at any level, let alone the level of the presidency. So education is the long-term fix. Um, I think that uh, I have to be careful in the classroom because I can't be explicitly, uh, it would be unfair to my students promoting some kind of political agenda. So there are other things I think that frankly are subversive. Books would be one of those. I think I'm emphasizing my courses travel. Uh, we can't travel now, but we can look ahead to a time when we come because it exposes us to other cultures and other ways. Uh, other people, our country is a great country, but there are other countries too that have great ideas. And I like Michael Moore's thesis about where to invade next. That, we that was a great movie this. too. Yeah. It really was, but let's go in there and steal some of those ideas. It's not like they're copyrighted. And so I, I try to integrate travel as a theme into my courses because of the corrosive effect it would have over time for a lot of these uh, racist uh, attitudes. Uh, and I think again, in the period in which we live, being a history teacher, you know, we talk about, well, we don't want to just bore people with the facts, but there is the importance of just teaching objective reality. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the facts and the truth really matter. So that's the educational agenda I've got. And uh, again, I've realized it's, there's going to be a whole lot of work to be done long after I'm gone, but this is what I'm determined to do as, um, and to work at that as hard as I possibly can. Now, you also have some, uh, some programs that you also think that we should have, but before we get there, I, I have a question you you're in the, when you're in the classrooms and you're you're teaching here in Lone, at Lone Star you have a whole lot of students from both rural and, and both rural areas and suburban and urban areas in your classes um, one of the hopes that we had was that by this time the younger generation that's coming up because they've lived among just about everybody that some of the, the carnal nature of racism would pretty much be gone. If you live together with somebody, you realize, hey, we do the things the same way after all. So there's no mystique or mystery among people as you have when you have things like segregation. In your classes, have you seen that people working together solves the problem? Or do you think the demagogues like Donald Trump uh, would be able to get to those with grievances either real or implied. Oh, I've seen a, an incredible difference in the 37 years I've been teaching at Lone Star and Kingwood. And it has to do with that mix, with uh, me looking out over the student body and seeing that wonderful, that that rainbow of, of different colors. And and I think we, there's no doubt about it. I think there's all kind of data to indicate that the, the current generation just 
doesn't have the deeply rooted prejudice. It's not to say you can't find some, but just on one issue along homophobia. Mm -hmm. When I started teaching in Kingwood in the 1980s, I could not uh, have a fruitful discussion of homosexuality in my classroom. There would be so much snickering and there would be so many uh, ugly words and uh, so much of a lack of receptivity, but that clearly has changed. And we see that statistically, the support for gay marriage over the years. And Barack Obama, since that, when Joe Biden, remember, was the one who pushed him, pushed him yeah. he, he changed his mind. And it was right before the 2012 election when, you know, he's a great politician. He he had the sense that things are changing. And, and among my youth base, there's a greater receptivity here. So I don't doubt that there are residual elements, but I've seen it in the classroom. And that's what really makes me Hopeful. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Over the years, I would conduct straw polls at the time of presidential elections. When I came to Kingwood College, the first year we opened was 1984. I polled my students on secret ballot, who they would vote for for president. And Reagan won with 80% against Fritz Mondale. And that tide began to turn in the early 2000s. And uh, it almost exactly tracked the dramatic upswing in terms of the Latino percentage of our student population. And uh, so, I, you know, in a way that's discouraging because so much of it's linked to race. Uh, but I, th I think the, the, the white kids too, I think generally they have more progressive uh, feelings. And for those who come from the rural backgrounds, it's good to have them in the mix because I don't think they're, I think that sometimes they're exposed to a kind of culture that's retrograde in some of these respects. And it's really good to have them all there together. Now, look, um, that is, first of all, that is great to know because you are right there at the pulse where, where the young folks are. Um, what concerned me the most about this last election, and then we'll go into some of the programs that you talk about, um, is that we had 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump. Ironically, that is more than any other presidential candidate has ever gotten except for Joe Biden. That was a concerning number for me because a lot of people thought if Joe Biden got what Hillary Clinton got or a little bit more, that would have been enough for him to win the election. He would have lost the election in a landslide under that scenario. Instead, he won on a landslide, what I call a landslide, 7 million votes, mm -hmm. even as, in as much as Donald Trump got what he got. How do you explain or how would you break down that 74 million people? I mean, I must tell you, it is shocking to me and disappointing to me that there are so many people who would vote for this guy. And I know some of them know better. 
Well, I think there are people um, we understand who got things they wanted from the Trump administration. So you have that traditional wing of the Republican Party, many of them good people, people that are in my extended family. They like the, the tax cuts. They like the deregulation. That was good for business. So there's that traditional element that was kind of along for the ride. You know, you have to be careful about the parallels with Nazi Germany, but that's kind of the way the German conservatives, the nationalists, felt about bringing Hitler in. They thought they could control him and that there were certain things that he could deliver. And he did in terms of certain of the policies uh, that would have been opposed by the parties on the left. I think another uh, hardcore, uh, as we, we know, a portion of uh, Trump's base would be evangelical Christians. You know, I saw a very disturbing survey in the Chronicle some months ago, Egberto, and it said that among white evangelicals, and I think that the Catholics uh, in, in that category were included too, that there's a direct correlation between the, the regularity of church attendance and the levels of racial, racial resentment. And it made me wonder, what in the hell are they learning in those churches. I don't think it's explicit, but as bad as the Baptist church was in terms of the attitudes there when I went to that as a kid growing up, there was a song about how Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Something's being lost in the communication. So I think that part of the population that's so wed to that kind of religious outlook that a fundamentalist outlook in many cases. They got things they wanted from Trump too, in terms of his, you know, genius ability to appeal to them on, on social, on social values. I think too, there's been some research on the kind of personalities, and this explains some of Trump's base too. There, there's a way to measure what's called an authoritarian personality type. There are certain people who like to be led, and there are certain people who like to try to dominate. And Trump's own a leadership style and who Trump is appeal to those folks. And I think a lot of those people come from churches where those preachers are in a kind of an authoritarian leadership right. role. Right. And that's a part of it. So I bring it back around to our prior point, uh, Egberto, education is such a key. Um, I'm not as religious as I used to be. And some of this I was when I was a teenager. And some of that is I learned about a broader world out there. That's not to say that people should reject uh, religion in its entirety. But uh, I like what somebody had recently said, that there are those Christians, and then there are people who are followers of Jesus. And I hope we can push more and more, get more and more to still go to church. And I love to go to church with my wife when the church is functioning, to be in that category of followers right. of Jesus, because there's a lot of a beautiful message there. I would argue that Jesus himself was something of a Christian socialist. <laughs> well, actually, I think if you follow Jesus's writings or, or what, what we learned about Jesus, that is a, that is a fact, right? I mean, it's yes. the type of sharing, the type of things that he support is really, it's really collective, the collective, exactly. right? Well, That's the, last, how... the last shall be first. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, we, I mean, the thing about it is it's funny because I, 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 I wrote a pastor here in Kingwood somewhere who wrote a piece in the newspapers talk, uh, given the Christian evaluation of capitalism. Capitalism was Christian. And I'm like, uh, yes, are you yes. kidding me? Yes. Something yes, that right. has no soul, something that is based on selfishness, something that is based on greed. You're associating with Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy. <laughs> it really is blasphemous. In the same way the Spanish Inquisition did blasphemous things to people right. they considered to be heretics. That's not Christian. That's not, not being at all. Of Jesus. Yes. Now, I have another contention, and that is I think, I think th uh, there's a lot of latent racism that 
uh, generally just goes hidden as long as people are comfortable and not having to fight for things. They generally, there are certain things that are just kept swept under the rug. So I think, um, uh, you know, a lot of people like to say a lot of these issues are economic or not economic. I fall in a place that I think, a, I think eco, lack of, of good economics can bring out a whole lot of things that otherwise stay hidden. Now, you mentioned in your, in your piece that there are some social democratic policies that we need to, that we should think about. Why don't you tell me a little bit about those? Well, um, you had seen that um, a friend of mine and I collaborated on uh, launching a new website. Just a local effort. We'll see where it goes. Called the I tell you what, why don't you tell folks uh, how your website, what it's about, and then we can talk that question. Yes, the website is for the new Social Democrats. Uh, right now, there's uh, it's kind of preposterous because it's me and a friend right here in town who uh, wrote a kind of Social Democratic manifesto, and uh, we put a website together, and we're hoping to to start a conversation and, and see where this goes and find allies all over the United States. And what we're doing is we're, we're feeling that there should be an organization in this country at some point that explicitly supports the kind of social democratic policies we see in Scandinavia, especially, and in Western Europe. Now, the good news is the Bernie Sanders campaign was, it was referencing those policies exactly. Whenever Bernie was asked to give examples of what he he was uh, uh, not uh, afraid to call democratic socialism. He always talks about places like Denmark. So that's what we're hoping to do. Um, and I think that over time, those policies which create or aim at creating a more egalitarian and democratic society, to me, that's what social democracy or democratic socialism means, lifts the entire population and, and creates just a, a better sense of social cohesion and, uh, and belongingness. And, socialism, if you want to put it that way, with a hyphen in between. And I think it can get at the roots of some of that, uh, that ugliness that, that feeds racism. So uh, that's kind of uh, what I was getting at there, that we've got a long way to go before we have policies in the United States in areas like healthcare and uh, just uh, things like uh, maternal leave, the side one specific, and a tax policy. We've got a long way to go before we get to even what the Scandinavians have done so far. And I'd like to see more of that happen. And I'd like to have a place where people can go where that explicitly is the objective. Hence the need for the new social Democrats. Now, I, we came up with the title new because there's a sense that we need to reboot. We need a kind of a reset. Some of those countries in, in that I'm referring to kind of lost the path for a while and uh, suffered a loss of some of their popularity. But I think the basic principles remain sound. And uh, there's a Netflix series that inspired me called Borgen that's about a female prime minister in Denmark in the early uh, uh, two, two, uh, 2010s. And uh, her name is Brigitte uh, Newborg, uh, Birgitta. And at one point she feels the need in the Danish party system to make a new start. And she launches a party called the New Democrats, which has a kind of a social democratic platform. So that inspired me to come up with this uh, title for what we're, we're modestly trying to put into motion here. I think that is very important because, you know, first of all, you know, I've, I've gone through this thing, whether, you know, uh, what, what the plutocracy has done here via the Paul Manifesto and others is they've tried to make the word social, socialism, which is really a good word. They've, they've just about made it a bad word. And the, the, the thing that many Democrats who believe in all these policies, I mean, it's, it's a real democracy. These are democratizing policies. What a lot of uh, a lot of people are 
debating, should we be using the word uh, given the stigma attached to it? Or should we come up with something else that is less stigmatizing because it hasn't been beaten up yet? To which my, my answer is generally that anything that we bring up that brings everybody in, they'll turn that word into a bad thing. So why not uh, make folks understand that what they call the bad thing was really a lie and explain what it really means, even if it takes time to do so? Your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a very important conversation to be had. And I don't know that I've come to an ultimate conclusion, Egberto. I think, again, we really need to explore that very thoroughly. Now, you see that that's some of what, what we're doing here with the use of the term social democrat, that it doesn't have that kind of stigma. Because not only has the word socialism been besmirched and used dishonestly and as a political club by the right, it is also, let us be very honest about this, been really corrupted by the left, elements of the left. Um, when Actually, I see- when you say that, I think that bears a bit of explanation because a lot of the left needs to understand that. So why don't you explain that? Well, when I see a headline like uh, Venezuelan socialist and uh, what they're what they're doing, uh, the Maduro regime, this is right. not a regime that anyone with my kind of political values would would want. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council identify with and associate. Uh, here in Houston a few weeks ago, there was a Black Lives Matter related protest in uh, Lamarck. And I saw in the news coverage some uh, people marching around and they had red t-shirts that had a hammer and sickle. Uh, a couple of these people had long guns and trying to emulate, I think, the militias on the right. And uh, the t-shirt said Houston Socialist Movement. Well, I looked it up online and it didn't take very long for me to um, discovered that this was nothing more than a front group for very small, a local uh, chapter of the Communist Party of the United States. That kind of stuff doesn't help. We have to fight this kind of this kind of uh, misuse of socialism all the time. And I'm not sure then whether, you know, so much damage has not been done that we can ever rehabilitate fully the term in the way it should be. George Orwell, who's one of my inspirations, I'm not real. I didn't come to this from Karl Marx. It was sources like Orwell and the Fabian Society in England. And Orwell, in one of his essays, said that socialism has become a diamond beneath a mountain of dung. And uh, so we, <laughs> that's part of what we try to do is dig, to dig it out. But I'm not sure at this point, Egberto, there are enough shovels. So, so let, let me ask you this then, yes. because you mm-hmm. use the word social democrat on your uh, new website. Are you are you just taking out the ism out of it because of that? Or do you what what's your intent? Well, I think, again, Egberto, there's a good debate that has to take place about what ultimately do we mean by, by socialism? And could it actually be that what we're seeing in those countries that inspire 
uh, people like me in Eastern Europe, not Eastern Europe, God, God knows Western Europe, is a mix, is some kind of a hybrid form. And will it ever be socialism in some true traditional sense of the term? I don't know. And I'm not really sure at this stage it's all that important. I, as long as we keep moving toward the goal of what we would say here, a more perfect union, not a perfect union, we'll never attain that, but we keep moving toward a goal of a better society and pursuing the kinds of reforms along those lines. I think you may well get to the point where you have accumulated enough of these reforms and put them in place that you end up with something different. And uh, so maybe that's what I mean by social democracy. And it could well be that I'm, I'm moving toward a place where that is distinctive from socialism itself. You know what Does is interesting is that I always call, I always say, I, if we look out for humanity, everything would be fine. You know, when you ask somebody, hey, this policy, is it good for people? Yeah, the, the, first, thing a biz, the first thing the politician asks, how does it affect business? Uh, and what we are supposed to ask is, how does it affect humanity? And then you build a business around how, you know, you, you decide how you want your, how humanity will exist in your society. And then you build a business process around it. You know, somehow that seems to be anathema to the thinkers. But um, I, I like what you said. I've talked, spoken about a bifurcated economy because I do believe in competition to make products, that sort of stuff. But I also believe that uh, if you break your leg tomorrow, there's nothing about competition. You're going to go look to find a, find a hospital or, you know, so I think we have to look at an economy where there are things that are needed absolutely. And that doesn't belong in the risky part of the economy. And there are things where risk is good, where it belongs. And I, and I kind of think that is sort of what you're saying when you exactly. put all these things together that exactly. makes sense. One thinker I much admire, I don't know that he should be called a thinker, is Rick Steves. And uh, Rick Steves, of course, has an enormously uh, popular uh, business in terms of the tour guides, primarily for European rides and uh, the, uh, the podcast he does and uh, the stuff that he sells on his website. This man is a capitalist. I would imagine he's worth tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But if you read his book, Travel as a Political Act, there's a great chapter on Denmark. There's a great chapter on the necessity of the European Union. There's a great cha chapter on drug policy in Europe. He's very admiring of just the kind of thing you're talking about. He's a capitalist in the truest sense of the term, but he, he sees the benefits of the social democratic policies, the kind of social cohesion that in a country like Denmark or Norway has helped them combat much more effectively COVID-19. Now, it's been a mixed bag. Sweden hasn't done as well for various reasons as some of the others. But I don't think it's accidental that they, Norway has done a whole lot better than we have. Um, uh, you know, there's just a, a raft of reasons. And I think that the, the outlook, that mindset is, and the culture is different because of years of parties which have, have promoted these kinds of ideas. I mean, it's important. I mean, let, let, you just mentioned COVID. You take a look at COVID and the solution. COVID doesn't know borders. COVID doesn't know boundaries. How does centralization doesn't, it's not what's needed for COVID given the way COVID spreads, given the way, I mean, people get, but anyhow, that's beyond that. We're coming up close on time. So I ask this question to every single person that I interview, and that is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Uh, well, let me just say, I guess this new organization, the new Social Democrats, because I would like to get a plug in for that. I'd like for people to check out our ideas. Uh, what motivated that more specifically? And that has to do with the certain uh, deep misgivings that my friend and I have about the, the largest socialist organization in the country for some time, the Democratic Socialists of America, I feel is taking a wrong direction. 
election. They refuse to endorse Biden in the campaign. Rhetorically, they use a kind of language that's off-putting. Uh, there are a lot of Marxists in the group that have a revolutionary kind of agenda. Uh, you know, sadly, most of the people who joined since the Bernie Sanders campaign are young people who are inspired by Bernie, who don't have that extreme kind of politics. And so that's one thing I'd like to say that that I, I have hopes that that organization can find a a better political path. And in the meantime, I want to pitch the appeal of the new Social Democrats to people that are to the right of us, people like my friends in the Kingwood area Democrats, people who currently identify as liberals and progressives, that uh, there's a sweet spot somewhere there where liberalism and progressivism shades into social democracy. And so I, I, that's all I want to do. I want to get in a kind of a closing uh, commentary in regard to that in terms of an ultimate political objective. So do check out the website. Uh, if you do that for newsocdems.org and uh, check out what we have to say and get in touch, I would, I would really appreciate your feedback. Professor Stephen Davis, as usual, it's always my pleasure to speak to you, to learn from you, to get new information from you. Thank you for having been on Politics Done Right. Well, thank you, Egberto. The admiration is mutual. We've done a lot of great things, and I look forward to, to collaborations in the future. Thank you so much. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal. A safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller. I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. Poodle pamperer, piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal.